How many of you, growing up, would hear that the lesson is going to be on Romans 14 and kind of inhaled a little bit deeper than you normally would? It's got a reputation, doesn't it? Unfortunately, there shouldn't be a book in the Bible with a reputation. But unfortunately, a chapter that's devoted to unity um, is sometimes the source of a lot of disunity. Uh, And that God is not the author of confusion. So when we come into class, and this this is how I feel about class, and I'm prepping this. I do not expect a ton of <laughs> divisive questions, but I may expect a question that I don't know fully how to answer. Class is a place that you come to, not to give the right answer, but to learn the right answer. And that's one of the things that I really like about the classes at Avon, uh, is that it's not just kind of uh, a recollection of all of the right things that you've been told, but an open conversation about how we're supposed to get to the image of Christ. And I love that. I'm excited about that. And so uh, we're going to look back. We're going to go back to the end of chapter 13, spend a little bit of time. And then uh, we're also looking at the first half of Romans chapter 14 today. So if we go back up into chapter 13, it opens with let everyone be subject Uh, to the governing authorities. We talked about what that may have meant. We talked about what the implications for that uh, for us today are. Uh, And then he talks about um, that authority is God's servant for your well-being. For this reason you are to pay taxes for the authorities uh, are God's servants devoted to governing. Pay everyone what is owed. Taxes to whom Uh, Taxes are due revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. I love this. We we owe the government taxes. Why? Because the government, in abstraction and as a generality, is there to protect us, right? To to provide protection uh, for us. We owe those, uh, we owe stores <laughs> our money if we expect a product or a service in return. We owe those that are in authority over us respect and those who inspire us honor all of these things. Now, once again, consider the audience and what it would have been like to re-emphasize, because Jesus talked about this already, you owe the Roman authority something. Ouch. That would have stung. And then he turns and says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. So as a recap question, what does it mean to owe love to one another? It's interesting that he says, you know, you owe the government taxes, you owe those that are in authority over your respect and honor and all of that kind of thing. Owe no one anything except love. What do we make of that? It reminds me of Philippians 2, have the same mindset that you that was in Christ, that you consider others as more important than yourself. Look not only to your own interest, but the interest of others. I think that's kind of a picture yeah. of this never-ending indebtedness of love. 
considering others more important than yourself and showing deference to them, giving them what they need. Very good. Absolutely. Uh, I thought I saw another hand. Okay. Say, yeah, and I totally agree, uh, Brad, there. When we think of owing someone, there's a bondage there, right? Like I'm in debt. And we're always working to remove ourselves from any sense of bondage. We want the total freedom, so we don't want to owe anyone anything. And yet, there is a universal concept. There is a universal debt you will always pay. Always. And that is to love one another. And it kind of... Um, Maybe goes into detail in Philippians 2 there where it talks about, yes, you, you are concerned for yourself, but look out for the concerns of others as well. What does that say? It's incredible to me. It's, I mean, if you think about um, what this means to our existence, right? Obviously, the, the Bible is emphasizing this principle that exists, that you will always owe something, and what that debt is, is love. So what does that say? Uh, and really, I, I'm asking you to think about it. Uh, this timeless message that sits at the root of our existence. We were meant to be interconnected. We were meant to have God is governing two aspects of our lives. And Jesus, you know, he sums up what, what are the, what's the greatest law. And he says two things. Because God is governing two aspects of our lives. Our relationship with Him and our relationship to one another. And when it comes to our relationship to one another, we owe other individuals love. That's what we owe them. God has placed that debt on us. I think Lisa had her hand up. It never ends. It never fails. It, and uh, this, once again, I'm used to looking at chapters and verses, but as you kind of step back and take a look at the, the good news, the gospel, this upside-down kingdom, if you will, the message is consistent. God is governing two aspects of your life, your relationship to Him and your relationship to other individuals. And Paul is emphasizing the very same message that Jesus brought. <coughs> Love one another. Um, he talks about this is how you will know, or how the world will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. He also says that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Yes. So what he's trying to bring together is all of the paganism that the Gentiles have believed all these years. All of the law that the Jews have believed all these years, he's bringing them together at the cross, the cross of love. He had enough love to die for all of them. Now this is the new system. You love one another like I loved you. And it's not just that I love you, it's that I would die for you. Right. That's a really good point in terms of the audience that he's speaking to here. You know, their concept of love certainly is one of what I owe. <laughs> Right When I uh, sin or something like that, I owe something to sacrifice. And once again, they had gotten so focused on what they owe in, in those terms that they have lost the sense that Paul's trying to bring them back to. Because he says, look at the commandments. All of these can be summed up by one concept, a principle that you owe love to one another. Yeah, uh, just one of the things that uh, always helps me. 
That's really good, and, and that's kind of sparks an additional thought, Bob, in the sense that what does it say about a creator that demands love from his creation? What does that say about him? What does he value? What does he write? Like, what, is he, uh, what does his personality consist of? What is the, the very central theme of existence when it comes to God? Well, if he's telling us to love one another, that must mean that certainly his central quality is one of, of love, correct? Right? And in that same sense, I, that makes me think of you're going to be a slave to something. Either you're going to be, a, right, like you should be a slave to love. <laughs> and, and daily I'm constrained, I'm shackled, if you will, by this concept that he has paid me so much love and compassion. As Bob had kind of uh, stated, shouldn't we be doing that same thing? I, I am motivated to do that same thing. Reminds me of a comment that Bob had made to me after class when we were talking about like what does it look like to be a Christian and all those those things. Um, it's uh, it's not easy, but I can evaluate myself and I can go. I'm too pretty good here. I really need work here. And I really, the world will never know who you are until they see what you do. Right? Like the people outside, we have a good relationship with one another. We kind of know what we struggle with and what we're good at and that kind of thing. But what this is really saying is, what is the, how does the world look at us? How does the world evaluate us? And the way that they're going to do that is their interactions with you and the way that you behave towards them. And one of those driving principles is, the world's going to know that you belong to me. If when they look at you, they don't see, man, they're so self-righteous. They're going to go, man, they take care of one another. They help me, and I don't even go there. 
why would they do that? So I, it is challenging. It is, and it is very convicting. Um, and so this concept, I, there's something very convicting about this idea of owing love to one another. Um, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For the commandments do not, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, uh, covet. And if there is any other commandment, are summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Um, this echoes, you know, how Jesus summarized the law. And in context of the audience, think about how this, how this would have resonated with them. It's really incredible to think about a statement that can sum up the entire Old Testament. Like, think of everything that happened. Um, I, you think of the laws in Leviticus and, and, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of laws that they had to, to abide by uh, in Israel. And the fact that it can be summed up by a central core principle. And that is that uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And that love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's incredible to me. Obviously, when Jesus summarizes, he was asked, well, who's my neighbor? And we all know how he responded to that. Which was a really profound answer in and of itself. It wasn't just the person that lives next door to me. It wasn't just the person that, that I work with that I'm somewhat acquainted with and friendly with. It's people that are in need. Because we owe love to one another. Okay, so let's read uh, uh, chapter 13, 11 down through the end of the chapter. Why are we doing this? And do this because we know the time that it is already the hour for us to awake from sleep. For our salvation is now nearer than when we became believers. The night has advanced towards dawn. The day is near. So then we must lay aside works of darkness and put on the weapons of light. Let us live decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in discord and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to arouse its desires. What does Paul mean when he says our salvation is now nearer than when we became believers? Uh, why was the day near? Uh, verse 12, then, uh, then, and is the day near now? So he's using some, some language, language that we see elsewhere um, in First Thessalonians. I don't know if we have time uh, to read that, but once again, as I... Look at all of the analogies and kind of the parables, if you will, that Paul uses. I'm starting to see so many um, parallel, or or he tends to use those analogies a lot. Be of the day, the weapons of light, that kind of thing. What happens at night? Why do we call it nightlife? It's very different than daylife, isn't it? Nightlife has a very specific reputation even then, this is a universal concept, right? This is this is transcultural uh, concept that bad things are usually done at night. I say bad, maybe self-indulgent. Um, he mentions carousing, drunkenness. Those things happen during the day. Uh, 
but they most predominantly occur at night. I'm not going to answer why that is, um, you know, but, but certainly there is a pattern there. And we are to be awake. We are to be awake from sleep. Uh, the night has advanced towards the dawn. The day is near. The, the sunrise is coming. This is the motivation for us to, to owe one another love. So what does this mean? The day is near. Our salvation is nearer than when we became believers. <clears throat> I think sometimes when you see the word salvation, you have a very limited view of it. It's not always necessarily talking about heaven or hell. I think what we're talking about here is the resurrection of the dead when we will be saved from the wrath of God. Okay. It's not, I don't think it's talking about heaven or hell in that sense. And it's closer every day we live to Right, right. I, I think so, yeah. I, I think that's a good thought. Uh, it, it's, it's not uh, necessarily the return of Christ, but maybe our relationship to God at that moment. And for, for sure, like every day that you live, we've got a hand over here. Every day that you live is one step closer. One step closer to what? To the end, unend, your end, Every day you're progressing, right? And, and certainly compare who you are today to the day that you first decided to accept Jesus as your Savior, right? And become baptized. Certainly, I mean, I was miles away from any kind of maturity <laughs> uh, when I became a Christian. So the, the, as the, the dawn nears, our salvation goes in talks a lot in many places about uh, being brought out of the darkness. And uh, when we obey the gospel, we're brought out of the darkness. What are we brought into? Light. Jesus is the light. And uh, the closer we get to Him, I mean, the more that we walk in the light as He is in the light, the closer we are to Him. The closer we are to our salvation, He is our salvation. Right, right. Absolutely. You know, uh, I love the idea of, of waking from sleep now that the light of the world has been revealed, right? And that's kind of this concept that Jesus is light. We want to walk with him and, and be in the light. Um, and this concept that we start living, living the ironies that we find in Jesus' teaching, right? Like, don't put yourself first, <laughs> you know? He who wants to be first should be last. And um, those uh, that want to inherit the earth, they need to be meek. You know, all of these upside down principles that we find and that we're often judged for having is the truth, the reality of this situation. And so kind of this concept that we have been enlightened, if you will, by the presence of Jesus. There should always be an urgency, in my opinion, about the return of Jesus. I think that this plays a little bit into what he's saying. I think maybe it's more akin to what we see in Deuteronomy 6 when he talks about uh, these words I, I am commanding you today must be kept in mind and you must teach them to your children and speak to them as you sit in your house, as you walk along the road, as you lie down, as you get up, you should tie them as a reminder on your forearm, fasten them as symbols on your forehead, and scribe them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. So, yes, 
It's always nearer because every breath that we take is one second closer uh, to our end, the end, what have you. And so there's this, in my opinion, overarching urgency that you always keep that in the forefront of your mind. Why, why did he command this? Why, why was he like, treat it like it's always in front of you? Because when you do that, it changes you. It changes your behavior. I am a really, really bad procrastinator, like terribly, right? And like, I don't get moving until I feel the pressure. And this is like, well, okay, then you keep the pressure in front of you all the time. Uh, and that's going to motivate you uh, to, to owe love to one another. Okay, let's go to Romans 14, and we're going to uh, read the first four verses. Now receive the one who is weak in, in the faith... And do not have disputes over differing opinions. One person believes in eating everything, but the weak person eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not despise the one who does not. And the one who abstains must not judge the one who eats everything, for God has accepted him. Who are you to pass judgment on one another's servant? Before his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we go from this idea of owing love to everyone and knowing that, you know, uh, we're waking up uh, from sleep and that the day is drawing near. And he says, now receive the one who is weak in faith and do not have disputes over differing opinions. This kind of draws us back to maybe one of the prime challenges that Paul is dealing with there at Rome. Rome. How many differing opinions would there have been between the the Jews and the Gentiles? Obviously, a lot, right? Uh, And he mentions quite a few here. Holidays, what you eat, you know, the, the kind of like circumcision. Right? That was, that was a big deal as well. Um, but here he's talking about uh, uh, someone that might eat only vegetables and one that feels like they, they can eat anything and still be okay with God. So the next question, how does it look to be weak in the faith versus being strong in the faith? What qualities are very apparent, and, and really what I'm kind of getting towards is, what distinction is Paul making here? Uh, it's a very open concept. Uh, uh, receive the one who is weak in faith. Well, that's, we kind of kind of define that a little bit. What does this mean? Yeah, Lisa. Babe in Christ. Babe in Christ. We've got uh, another hand over here. So, babe in Christ. We see the concept of milk versus meat in the Bible, and specifically about having your senses exercised towards good and evil by by nature of practicing or or uh, experience. Yeah, Bob. Now, in, in human terms, it's basically uh, if you believe what I believe, then you're strong. Okay. If you don't believe what I believe, then you're weak. And it doesn't matter which side of the question you're on. That's the way we often think. I, yeah, I, do, I do think that that has a lot to do with what we're talking about today. Right? Because I could perceive in a way that I think, you know, Bob's right before God. 
Who knows that Bob is right before God? God does. God knows that Bob... I have a perception of what I think, the way that we, the, the conversations that we have, <clears throat> the behavior that he exhibits in his every, I have a perception of that, but I do think, to your point, Bob, it's like, well, does he agree with me? Then he's right. Okay, I've got a couple, a couple over here. Yeah. So I think we have to ask ourselves, what is the faith, or what were they talking about there? And it's Jesus. Um, was Jesus the fulfillment of the law? So I think the Jews, or probably what he's referencing here, is that we in that faith is that Jesus fulfilled the law, thus it passed away. So they were still trying to hang on to that, mm-hmm. and that was weakness. Um, trying to, to hold on to things that used to be wrong that aren't anymore. And that would be hard for us. And I was thinking about this. And say our faith um, was going to progress in a way that God had predicted, was prophetic. And um, Jesus, like, we had another thing coming after Jesus, which I know is not true. But if something that we had always thought was wrong, like adultery or something, all of a sudden became right, it would be really hard to let go of that. Yeah. And so I'm trying to think of, of the Jews as not wanting to let go of these things like what we think should be. Um, but that was actually a weakness. It's something that used to be right by the same God they were still worshiping. Yeah. It's not right anymore. Very good. And I do think that this kind of... Um, let me see if I can draw this together because I have an experience like this. So what, what was it that was weak in their faith about this? Paul kind of points out that it was their conscience, right? Now, I was raised to think that celebrating Christmas was a sin. That's the way that I was raised. And I married someone that, <laughs> that Christmas was the most magical thing the entire year. We butted heads because I had a problem. I didn't think that it was, it was right. And I've, I've come to learn that it's okay to do that. Now... My conscience was weak about that, wasn't it? Her conscience was strong in that we, we can do this. It's okay, right? I was raised in different... So there is what happens then. What Paul is talking about is what happens then with two individuals like this. How do you handle that conversation? How do you handle that relationship? And, and that's really what we're driving at. Tommy... Yes. 
Absolutely. In, in fact, uh, in my particular example, Jen was very sympathetic because of this, because she knew, right, not to force me to go against my conscience. That is the natural gate of perception that God has given us, right? And you might be raised with ideals that are not morally right, but that still offend your conscience, right? I'm not going to get into all of that, but, but what we're talking about here is this idea that when you have a situation where someone's conscience might get hurt, what is your first reaction? You need to be patient with them. You need to be patient with yourself. You need to make sure that you're not encouraging someone to violate the very natural protection, the mental protection that God has built into you. Because if you start breaking that on that one thing, it becomes much easier, we all know this, for you to start breaking your conscience in other things. And that upends the whole um, heart, if you will. I'm sorry, I've, I've let a couple hands... This is getting into the next question, number four. Um, but I noticed that um, Tommy mentioned uh, people who are weak who don't understand that it's not wrong. And then where um, verse one, you mentioned in your version, it said opinions. Um, the NIV says disputable matters. Um, I think sometimes it's easy in theory to talk about this, but where it gets down to the nitty gritty is where we is deciding what is a disputable mm -hmm. matter, matter, what is an opinion, what is doctrine. And farther down where it says um, not to judge a sister, sister um, it's awful easy to say, well, that person thinks this, and oh, oh how silly they are. Um, and I think a lot of the, the whole issue comes down to are we, how are we deciding what is a disputable matter, what is an opinion? And I think a lot of it goes back um, to that unity in Christ. Um, are, is our, you know, are we putting the idea of Christ first and foremost? That, absolutely. I, I think the, the last statement you made is the point that Paul is trying to make. Um, and Bob, I'll get to you in just one second. I, I was listening, um, and, and obviously there's a couple of, of examples that I'll bring up under question four that talk about what do you do when there are disagreements and one person believes it's an opinion and one person believes it's a doctrine. I'm not going to draw that line, but Paul gives us really good instructions on how to handle drawing that line in that specific situation, and I think that that's the point, right? Um, there are uh, certainly things that we encounter today that aren't specifically addressed by the Bible, right? Like, I'm, I mean, we have technology now that has 
spiritual and sinful applications that were never directed, but the principles will always apply. And so what happens when I have a situation like that and I'm trying to draw that line? Well, that is a process. And what Paul is talking about is not how to draw that line, but how to act when you are attempting to interact with that individual body. Yeah, verse 1 talks about opinions. You know, we all have opinions. Uh, after 70 years of life, I've had opinions, and I've changed opinions yes. a lot. Uh, <laughs> that happens a lot as you grow up and you learn things. Uh, it's, there's not a prohibition in here about having opinions. We all have differences of opinion, and, uh, you know, just inevitable. The key word in verse uh, 1 is not to quarrel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do we handle it? Yep. Okay, you believe one thing, I believe another, but it's, you know, nothing wrong with discussing it. Yeah. But when we start putting the foot down and slamming this and, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of, you know, yelling at uh, voices, that's what he's prohibiting. Yeah. You, you can come to a knowledge together. You may not agree on everything, but you'll understand that that's what you need, right? Uh, this is what I believe great does. And one thing that we need to examine, okay, does my belief have any impact on my salvation? You know, if it's something that critical, but it, it's, uh, okay, you like green beans? I don't like uh, sweet potatoes. Uh, I can't have anything to do with it again because we, you know, have, have difference. That's not right. Right, and, and there, is, there are some very clear lines as to when we make a distinction between milk of the word and meat of the word. There are concepts, there are principles that you always have to maintain. Um, he's not necessarily talking about that. He's talking about what happens when someone who has a conscience towards something. I remember one particular individual at Trader's Point that had converted out of Catholicism and had a really hard time when it came to celebrating some of those things uh, because she had grown up doing that. No one gave her a hard time, thankfully. No one gave her a hard time because she was working through uh, her conscience. And that's a good, good thing. One of the uh, comments that Tom Hamilton had made when he was talking about this that I really, really loved was, what we're fellowshipping is our confidence in one another. I don't know if God is going to save you, Bob, but I have a confidence that you're seeking Jesus. That's what I'm fellowshipping. And there are times when people are caught in a trap of Satan. And what are we supposed to do? What's our goal there? I don't want to be near that fire. No. No, 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 no. You need to be patient with them. Rescue them. Sometimes they might get snatched away. That's a reality. But our goal is one of saving. uh, Okay, yep. And then Brad. I think, as well, we have to come to also the realization that it's okay to be weak. and to realize, hey, maybe I am weak in certain areas, and I need to avoid certain things. In 1 Corinthians 8, 
you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I realize I have weaknesses that I need to avoid in my life. You know, whether it's going to a restaurant with a bar, or going to a, you know, a place that's, you know, leads to sexual immorality, or going to these places that they yeah. might be okay for other Christians because they don't have that weakness, but right. I have that right. weakness, and I need to avoid it. Very good. Um, the common pattern that I see when Paul is dealing with this kind of thing, always build up, never break down. Always build up, never break down. And it's this idea of continuing to push everyone that you come in contact with that's interested in Jesus, pushing them further and further towards Jesus every chance that you get, bro. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about the comments Sarah made on the question of how do we know the difference between opinion and doctrine. And I think um, we have to humbly say we don't always know. Right. Uh, we, we, we have to be very careful. And to the question about unity, so when we, the fact that we don't know if something is a disputable matter or an opinion versus uh, uh, biblical doctrine, um, regardless, what unity looks like is the strong person doesn't look down yes. on the weak, yes. and the weak does not judge the one who does it. So, um, and that's that's where we, I think, sometimes get in trouble is. We think something is not a disputable matter, and uh, so we start judging. But um, I think either way, I think we have to be careful not to judge. We we can converse, but I think we have to be careful to pass judgment on some of those issues. We do. There, there should always be a reluctance, right, in condemning, in dividing in splitting, separating, right? The emphasis is always on do whatever you can to mend, to build, to encourage. And, you know, oftentimes, at least for me, the exception becomes the rule. No, the exception is the exception. And you need to focus on always building, always growing, always encouraging. And so I, I like that as a summary in, in, in the way that Paul says, well, the person who views themselves as strong needs to not look down. And the person that, that feels like they can't do this cannot judge. What an incredible, an incredible way to live, right? That's an incredible way to live. Um, and once again, one of the reasons why I think Avon is really, really good at, at helping people work through consciences, helping people continually move towards Christ. There is such a spirit here of just growing spiritually. And I I think that um, I commend this church, and it's also one of the things where I'm realizing how valuable that is, and how valuable that probably is to others that may not have that. Right? Um, Yeah, Ryan? Sometimes I see this Right. Arguing about the color of the carpet. Um, obviously, we need to be able to come to an agreement about those sorts of things. But what Paul's talking about here is things that people have very serious, deep convictions about. Um, so just Eating meat first, yeah. yeah. I don't need to go into, but like some Christians would say that you should never uh, defend yourself by any sort of use of force. Right. So imagine one of those Christians worshiping with a police officer who just had to. 
to defend himself. Right. And you're asking right. that person to fellowship with what he says doesn't work. But you know, this passage needs to, our framework needs to allow that to apply in both situations, both to see people who don't hold convictions, who hold convictions that we don't have and be okay with that. Yeah. And be contemptuous toward them. Yes. But also, you know, not everyone's going to believe what I believe because I believe it strongly. Um, sometimes when we come across those things, we just write that off saying, oh, this is a matter of biblical conviction. It's not opinion. Romans 14 doesn't apply here. Right. So we just kind of gut this passage of all of its power um, in preserving unity. I really agree. And, and this, there is an amazing amount of power in, in what this mindset can do. I think you're, I think that's a really good example of, uh, my dad, um, you know, he, he was a conscientious objector. He didn't want to be the one responsible for, you know, if someone broke into his house and he killed him. He would have felt guilty. His conscience would have bothered him because he would have sent someone essentially to hell. Now he obviously can't make that distinction, but there is a very, very solid argument and take right like so uh, and taking care of your family if someone in, invades or something like that so you're gonna often maybe not often but you are absolutely going to encounter situations where you have two people seeking Christ that are trying to serve God and get to heaven and to love Christ and they're gonna have differing opinions they just are opinions that affect their behavior and change aspects of their lives. And the power of this is, you guys should not be disputing. You shouldn't be arguing about this. Everyone's got to meet God with their conscience about things like this. Very good, I'm sorry. Yeah. I think an important key to work to love and is to always be Yeah, you know, it is kind of funny because, like, there's an assumption here of, of the, the weak opinion and the strong opinion. But what it really boils down to is the conscience. And, and what if your conscience has calloused over something? I think one thing would be if, uh, a, a good indication that your conscience has calloused over is, is maybe to look down or maybe to judge in those situations, right? And... and uh, once again, fellowshipping our, um, oh, how did he put it, our confidence in one another. I really, I really like that because it moves everyone forward towards Christ. I don't know how you put it, but you said something about how it says something about the church, something about the message. I can tell you that's true. Many years ago, we were living in Illinois, we were traveling through here. And Bob Sorrell was teaching on Romans 14. And he said, you know, we're going to talk about the church. And he said, Yes. And that kind of planted a message in my it planted a something in the back of my head. And then here I am years later in this congregation and I wonder how much what Bob said made a difference. Bob, I never told Bob that. So you didn't even know. Right. <laughs> Boy. I don't know exactly how to say this, but this all of this wouldn't uh, uh, speak against being firm in the way we deal with something. And in Galatians 2, uh, Peter came to Antioch, he was eating with those Gentiles until the Jews came 
from Jerusalem from James, and all of a sudden he withdraws from them. Yeah. Paul's words to him were pretty direct. Yes. I think his attitude is right, but uh, he spoke pretty plainly about uh, what Peter was doing on that occasion. Very good. It's a great example because the way that he instructed him too was regarding this principle, right? Uh, you, sh- you shouldn't. <laughs> you shouldn't have done that. Um, and there are some really clear examples, like uh, Jude 23, when it talks about the divisive, the worldly, the devoid of spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, maintain yourselves in the love of God while anticipating the mercy of our Lord Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ that brings eternal life and have mercy on those who waver. You think about a divisive person, a worldly person, devoid of spirit, and he's saying, have mercy on those that waver. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. In my opinion, of the example of Paul there to Peter, who was kind of and uh, had some, some additional responsibility for what his example said, right? He kind of had to snatch him, <laughs> snatch him out of the fire bit. He wasn't going to be patient in that. But look at the two things there. Being patient with those who are divisive that waver. Ah, I'm really trying, but I've got a streak in me, you know, uh, and I'm told to be patient with those. Yeah. It's interesting. We've several of these things mentioned, but you look at this passage and Paul's telling the, the one person, it's not a matter of opinion for them. Right. We always say, oh, it's just matters of opinion. Well, right. it wasn't right. for them. And then say, yeah, I know, I just hold this and go on. And then he tells them the answer to this particular argument, right? What is the answer? It's okay, he me. And then goes on to say, still, don't judge. Yes. Don't condemn. Yeah. So we, we can say, well, I'm right. I'm right. So we review that today. Is anybody's got a problem with me? We'll just tell them the right answer and not get over it. <laughs> That's not what Paul said. Can you imagine how they arrived at that argument? I often wonder. Mm. The many things that we argue about today, how would we arrive at some of them? Yeah. Some of them take a long, convoluted, technical route to get to our answer. And then we demand that everybody meet our answer or you're out. Right. Why, why doesn't that apply to this? Because Paul, can you, you know, what did they say in this situation? What did the people that couldn't eat, did they, and we don't even know who it was. It's possible it was the Jews because of the old laws. possible it was the Gentiles because of the idol worship. It doesn't even say for sure who it is. But what did they use? Uh, well, the silence of the scripture or some other, you know, you've got to have this authority. And we go through all those things, and like the topic that was mentioned earlier, what about protecting yourself? That's, that, that seems to fall in there. What about many other things? Can we even question those? Like the class that we're playing with you on the use of the, the money. You know, that's things that's often not allowed to be questioned. Right. How about many other things? Just some things to think about. How about drinking, gambling, and instrumental music and those things? Can we... Can we have that discussion, or is that absolutely not? I've already determined what it is, and if you don't agree with me, then you're out. So that I think that is the, the kernel of this concept. What happens when you have someone... 
that doesn't agree with you or that you, you don't agree with how you're supposed to handle that. And I think, I think one of the reasons why Romans 14 has a tendency to be divisive is because we go to this chapter to help us draw the line. That's not what this is doing. What this is doing is when you engage in those situations, guess what should be the first priority? Love. I think that's a very important distinction, and, and, and you you can look in, and we'll talk about. We're gonna we're gonna pick up back at that concept. If you read Second Timothy two, uh, in uh, when, when Paul is trying to counsel a younger preacher, how did he advise advise about some of these things? Um, and I think once again, we can't go to Romans fourteen to help us figure out what is doctrine and what is opinion. That is meant to be done in our interactions and continual study of the Bible. Because there are some things that are very, very clearly wrong. Now, my, my concept of clearly will evolve over time. Right? And that's what this chapter's real power lies in. Its ability to handle some of those gaps handle some of that evolution with uh, with a perspective to always towards love. Thank you so much uh, for your comments and participation this morning.